Amen. Amen. Behold your king. That's what we're doing in this Advent season. That's what we're doing this Christmas, being reshaped by that beholding of the king. We're grateful to God for who he is and what he has done. And in this Christmas season, we are especially grateful for what he has done in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You see, the incarnation is not only the ultimate expression of God's love, but the ultimate gift. Not just because of what Jesus gives, but because of who he is in himself. Andrew Wilson writes, the incarnation is the most extravagant gift in all history or literature. The original Christmas present, wrapped in rags rather than in decorative paper, does not merely come to give. He is himself a gift, the gift, the most outlandish demonstration of love that God could possibly offer, which is why we've entitled our Advent series this year, The Gift. Over the next four Sundays of Advents, we're going to spend time examining what this gift actually is, this gift of Jesus Christ, specifically looking at the themes of hope, love, joy, and peace in anticipation of celebrating Christmas. The reason this season in the church calendar is actually called Advent is because Advent means coming. It's in this season that starts four Sundays before Christmas in which the church prepares to celebrate the two comings of Jesus Christ. His first coming at his incarnation in Bethlehem, and his second future coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. This is a season to slow down, to meditate, to reflect on both of these comings of Christ, because Christ has come, and Christ is coming again. So this morning, we're going to be reading from Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, to experience a vision of Isaiah the prophet that describes God's purposes in sending his son, that describes in Jesus coming to this earth. So if you're able, whether you're here on campus or watching from home, please stand as we read the Bible from Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. You can follow along in your Bible or on the, the text on the screen. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, and the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This is God's word. You may be seated. What is hope? The American poet Emily Dickinson calls it the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a South African Anglican priest, describes hope as the ability to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. 
And in her book, On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books, Dr. Kieran Swallow Pryor describes the virtue of hope like this. She writes, hope is like all virtues, a practice. It is autobiographical, the story of the one who possesses it. And then she quotes a theology professor saying that hope is stretching that story forward to its best possible ending. A practice with friction, yes, but a practice that has to stretch out towards, always forwards to the best possible ending. This is our first practice, our our first rhythm, this first Sunday of the Advent season, the rhythm of hope, where we let the anticipation of the first coming of Christ build anticipation for the second coming. From Isaiah 11, 1 through 10 this morning, that, that rhythm of hope actually offers us three Christmas hopes. It offers us a righteous hope, a kingdom hope, and a worldwide hope. So as we step into this vision of Isaiah today in these, this chapter 11, we're going to let each image that he conjures up point us to hope, not in ourselves or how we're supposed to fix this broken world, but in God, the king, who will fix his world, how God, the king, offers us hope. And this first hope he offers is in the opening five verses of this chapter with a righteous hope. Take a look at the text. You see, sometimes called the fifth gospel, the book of Isaiah is filled with these prophetic images and visions that describe a a broken present and an unexpected future for God's people. It details the good news for what God is doing and will do in his world. And Isaiah shows up over and over again in the gospels, actually in the Christmas story, communicating the gospel in vivid pictures and poetry. And so our text today is no different. Listen to how Isaiah, in that first verse, this prophet of Christmas future, if you will, describes the vision of what he sees of God's plan. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, this is an unexpected image that Isaiah describes here because right in the previous chapter, in chapter 10, he tells this vision of God chopping down trees, pronouncing judgment on nations. But now we're stopping in our tracks in front of this one stump, this one unusual stump that rather than dying is, is budding with new life. This one unusual stump with a small sign of potential bursting forth from the judgment of God, sprouting the fruit of hope. It's almost like the cliffhanger scene at the end of uh, your favorite TV show, right, where the character that you love has been struck down and as the screen fades to black, you almost get small signs of life. The voice appears in the background or eyes shoot open. This is this teasing of hope with these smallest signs of life. So what in the world is happening here in this vision? Who is this Jesse, and why would a dead stump coming back to life communicate any kind of hope? Well, Jesse is this important branch in the family tree of God's people because Jesse is the father of the greatest king in Israel's history up until the point of Isaiah's time, King David. In the timeline of God's people, King David is the king against which all other kings are compared. King David is the king who receives the continuation of the promise of Genesis 3, that someday God will send someone who will crush the head of the serpent, who will put an end to sin and make right his creation, who will reverse the curse that has been brought on humanity and on all of creation. This snake crusher, David is told, will come from his line. And yet, son after son after son, the descendants of King David are the exact opposite of a snake crusher. They perpetuate the curse. They do not follow God's law, and their sin keeps on building. And yet, after God's judgment in Isaiah 10, we stumble across a stump, 
with new life coming from it. This one unusual stump, the stump of Jesse. From the roots of Jesse comes new life. Someone new is coming, someone that's not just a descendant from King David, but another kind of David, right? He's not just another branch of a branch of a branch in the family tree. He is a new branch coming directly from the very roots that David came from. And this is the hope of Christmas in picture form. This is why Christmas is filled with anticipation, why the first Christmas is so monumental, because the promises that God made in Isaiah 11 of a new king, a new kind of David, bursting forth from what appeared to be the end of God's people, this snake crusher who will make everything right, has come. Christmas is not simply about an unexpected baby in the womb of a virgin, but an unexpected king on his way to save his people. It is about hope, but not just any hope. Look at the rest of the description in verses 2 through 5. It's about a certain kind of hope. The text describes this king as one who will live and act and rule by the power of the Spirit of God. The divine Spirit of the Lord, of Yahweh himself. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That Spirit will rest upon this new king. And the beauty of this description is matched only by the incredible revelation that that God's future king will be perfectly in sync with him, ruling as he would rule, because he is indwelt by the Spirit of God. So what in the world does that mean? It means that he will rule with wisdom and understanding, the text says. Or in other words, characteristics of authority properly exercised. Wisdom fueling his judgments, understanding empowering him to see the right to the heart of an issue. Wisdom, his default state of being, understanding being the exercise of wisdom day in and day out in his courtroom. He will also rule with counsel and with might as one who can strategize the right plan and has the capacity, the skill, and the strength to carry it out. But it's not just about how he acts, but why he acts, the text says. He will rule not only as a wise and strategic king, not only as a discerning and competent king, but as one who has grasped, truly grasped the knowledge of God who will live a life of worship to the creator king as one who is truly loyal to God, the king over all. By the spirit, he will be a righteous ruler, but he will also be a reverent ruler. The righteous hope of Christmas continues to build not just with the reality that a king is coming, but that a spirit-filled king is coming. And being a spirit-filled king means he will be a just judge. Look at the next verse. He's not just filled with the Spirit, but the life led by the Spirit leads him to respond with delight in this new state of mind, in the fear of the Lord. You see, the image Isaiah is using here that he's painting with the word delight there is like that of taking a deep breath and being captivated by an amazing smell. God's future king is captivated by living life in the fear of the Lord. It delights him. It consumes him. But not only that, it actually affects how he lives that life. It affects his judgment. He won't judge By appearances, after all, he's controlled by the Spirit of God, which the Word tells us in 1 Samuel 16. God God doesn't see as man sees, right? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And why would it be any different with this future king? This new king, this new David, will judge not by his eyes and ears, not by appearances, but by reality. He won't be lost in misperceptions, but commanding by truth. It is his character as one who delights in the fear of the Lord that determines the power of his rule. Who he is and how he leads are in complete sync. What you see is what you get. There is no division in him. And you get true justice. 
Look at verse 4. He's going to judge with righteousness. He won't be swayed by appearances, either negatively or positively. He will bring justice to the needy, the poor of the earth. You see, this new king that God says is coming won't play favorites. Unlike the kings that he succeeds in history, he will give his full attention to the cause of the needy, of the poor, and he will do justice. He's fair, impartial, honest, upright, honorable, above board in all that he does, executing the justice of God by the Spirit of God for everyone, no matter their status. The righteous hope of Christmas here is that God's future king will rule with justice, true justice, so that no matter what tax bracket you come from, your political affiliation, your social standing even, God's future king will be just with you. And on top of that, he demonstrates his power in this otherworldly way. Look at the second half of verse 4. He doesn't need to use the weapons of this world to enact his justice like all the other kings. No, the display of his power, the way he carries out justice, is none other than the words that he speaks. He speaks with such power and such authority that his words can be characterized as a rod striking the earth and his very breath giving out capital punishment. The focus here in this vision is not just some gruesome picture of violent slaughter, but that his judgment is always righteous and just. And the reason it is righteous and just is because it is rooted in God's holiness, in God himself. Because God's future king is operating by the spirit of God, delighting in how God says life is to be lived. The righteousness with which he judges here is an embodiment of the holiness of God himself. The justice that he brings is a demonstration of the holiness of God himself an embodiment and a demonstration of holiness that is exemplified, look at verse 5, in his very clothing. This new king, this new David, the, the text uses this imagery of clothing and poetry here as more than just a fashion statement. It's a declaration of his capacity, a proclamation of the purposes to which he is committed. God's future king wears this righteousness like a belt, faithfulness like a sash. He is someone who always and over and over again acts for the cause of righteousness, following God's divine commands. He has moral integrity that that almost operates like reflex. He is immovable from God's plan. He is faithful. He shows steadfast loyalty to God and God's blueprint for life. His identity is on full display in the clothing that he wears. Committed to God, committed to living out God's way of life. This is the king we can expect. This is the righteous hope that we look back on the first Christmas with. The righteous hope we look forward to the second coming of Christ with. That the righteous ruler, the new king, the better David, God's future king, is no longer future. He has come. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead in righteousness with justice. Is that what comes to mind when you think of Christmas? the making right of all things wrong, the undoing of sin's devastation, the remaking of all of creation. You see, the hope of Christmas is a righteous hope because it is the hope for a righteous ruler who has come and will come again. And yet the picture that Isaiah paints here is not just that of a ruler executing justice, but what that justice means for all of creation. The first Christmas hope is a righteous hope, but as we move to the scene that Isaiah paints in verses 6 through 9, we encounter more than a righteous hope. We encounter a kingdom hope. So what do you think of when you hear the word paradise? What vision is conjured up in your mind when you think of a perfect world? 
I mean, Paul himself writes in 1 Corinthians 6 of what God has prepared for those who love him. He says, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human mind has conceived. It's, it's kind of hard to truly imagine paradise because on this side of the resurrection, all of our imaginations are stained with sin. And yet here in these few verses, we get a glimpse of that paradise, a taste of what God is planning. In this scene, we get the kingdom hope of Christmas. And it describes three ways that God's future king remakes God's creation. Three ways that through this branch, from the stump of Jesse, new life will be possible across all of creation to the point where nature itself is transformed. Look at verse 6. The first way that he does that is he changes relationships. In the kingdom of God's future king, predator and prey not only live together, they're hanging out together. Right? The justice executed by the words of his mouth does not just cause violence to cease, but generates this strangely beautiful and radically cosmic peace. Relationships of violence are changed into relationships of security. So secure that not only is a child safe among these predators, but is able to lead them. The new king does what humanity has promised and ultimately really only pretended to do in this world and actually brought about world peace. His rule changes relationships to the deepest degree. But it's not just that. These relationships are changed so much that his remaking of creation transforms the very nature of that creation. That's the second way that he remakes creation. Look at verse 7. Predator and prey are not just living together, hanging out together, and trying really hard to restrain their instincts of eating each other or running away. No, they're eating together. Their diet has changed. Next to uh, steak, the lion eats salad, right? Like The transformation is so complete that not just the animals are affected, but their children. This is the kind of remaking of creation that is permanent. It's inherited. The very order of creation is being remade in this picture. What was lost in Genesis 3 because of the entrance of sin and death into the world is not only being regained, but made even better. A new creation is coming. A new heavens and a new earth. God's future king is not just fixing what has been broken, but transforming everything. This is Eden 2.0. But Eden 2.0 wouldn't be complete without the reversal of something very important. And this is the third and final way that he remakes creation. Look at verse 8. The new king changed predator and prey relationships, transformed predator and prey nature. But here in verse 8, he remakes creation by reversing the ultimate predator and prey curse. He reverses the curse of Genesis 3. Look what he says in the description. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Have any of you met an infant? Right? They are pretty much helpless in any dangerous situation, right? Or, or a young child, a toddler maybe. For some reason, toddlers are kind of bent on their own destruction, if you've ever met one. They run into danger instead of away from it. So this picture that he says of an infant playing near a cobra, a young child sticking its hand into the nest of a viper, this picture of peace is to describe the transformation of an inherently dangerous situation. The permanent transformation that has been passed down through genes is not just limited to animals, but affects even humans and their relationship with animals. But it's, it's so much bigger than that, right? Because this is not just Isaiah describing a play date in the new creation, right? It's describing the undoing of sin, the destruction of death, the remaking of a world, because in this verse, we see the wonder of the curse of humanity removed. Let me show it to you. In Genesis 3, 14 through 15, the Bible records the punishment that God gave out when humanity sinned. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, 
Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, from the very beginning of the story of the Bible, we have been on the lookout for the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. We have been looking for a snake crusher. And now all the way in Isaiah 11, we read of a future king whose rule remakes creation in such a way that children, human offspring, the seed of a woman, are able to play with snakes without imminent danger. Do you see the hope of Christmas here? There is one who is coming, Isaiah writes, that will undo what our ancestors did, that will make everything right again. There is one who is coming to crush the head of the serpent. There is a new creation coming, a new kingdom. This is the second Christmas hope of Isaiah 11, a kingdom hope. Look at how he summarizes the kingdom in verse 9. The kingdom of the new king will be complete. No harm will be done. No destruction will come on the holy mountain of God. Notice here, too, that the mountain of God is not limited by geography or by boundary. No, in this new kingdom, the whole earth will be filled with that same knowledge of God, of Yahweh, of the creator king of the universe, that delights the new king. In this new creation, no one will do evil or act in a way that ruins creation in a way that echoes the sin of Genesis 3. No, in this new creation, in this new humanity, there is no corruption. God's right ordering of all creation has come, and it is complete. Its effects are felt to the depth of the nature of creation and to the breadth of the entire earth. And when that happens, the entire earth becomes God's holy mountain. When that happens, his peace is not restricted by national boundary lines or military might. It's not held up or slowed down by rough terrain and valleys or mountain ranges. No, his peace covers the whole earth and relationship is restored between God and his creation once again. In other words, the knowledge of the Lord, the restored intimate relationship with God that causes his future king to delight in him, that knowledge, this knowledge, fills the earth to capacity like waters fill the sea. Do you get the image that Isaiah is putting here? This image of fullness, of completeness, the image of a holy God making a creation broken and defiled by sin, once again holy through his new and righteous king. A better David is coming, and he will establish God's kingdom on this earth, and it will affect all of creation. It will remake all of creation in peace. It's actually the same image that Isaiah uses a few chapters earlier in Isaiah 2.4. He writes this about God. He says, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. And then he explains the outcome of that justice. He writes, They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. A day when the justice of God leads to the unlearning of war, the undoing of violence, true peace. Is that what we think of when we think of Christmas? Is this how we understand the incarnation of the Son of God? Is this how we understand the first coming of Christ as a a pointer to his second coming, as the beginning of a new kingdom, as the beginning of true peace, as the indicator of kingdom hope? You see, we're in between the first and second coming of Jesus right now. We're trying to reconcile how his life of nonviolence that led him all the way to a cross can be a preface to and the inauguration of the kind of kingdom that Isaiah is describing here. It seems impossible, and yet... And yet, we have faith. We believe that the cross of Christ led to the resurrection of Christ and points to a day when everything will be made right, when sin and death will be undone, when this kingdom will be firmly established in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the hope of Christmas, that God has indeed already sent his future king and that the righteous hope, the kingdom hope of Christmas is already here and yet we wait for it to be fully here. 
We wait for the earth to finally be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And yet we see it even now as we watch the earth filled up with gospel proclamation across the world. We see it being filled up in our neighborhoods as we participate in proclaiming the gospel to our community. This gospel that began on Christmas Day. But this brings us to that third and final Christmas hope from the text this morning in verse 10. We have this righteous hope. We have a kingdom hope. And in verse 10, we see that we have a worldwide hope. Isaiah explains, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Did you catch the shift that he makes here in his imagery? God's future king is not only a branch from the stump of Jesse, he's not only a new David, he is also the root of Jesse, the source for Jesse. He's not only the one that comes out of Jesse, but from whom Jesse came. He is not only the one to come, but the one who has always been. God's future king is not just some human, he is God himself. He who brings new life is the one from whom life comes. He's not just the branch, he is also the root, and as such, he stands as a banner a signal, a bright shining billboard that draws everyone, all peoples, to himself. Like a flare in the middle of the night, God's future king functions as this rallying point for the nations. There's kind of this certain magnetism here that's drawing people in, not one that compels or forces service, but that attracts and inspires allegiance. You remember the display of his power earlier, right? Injustice was not by weapons of war and violence, but with his very words. And the call to all people here is not one of a tyrannical ruler, but a good king, welcoming and calling to and drawing people from all over the world without restriction, according to ethnicity or people group, all peoples. This is a banner of hope that the future king waves, that God's new creation is not restricted to this certain people group, but that it's open to all who come to him, all who seek him out. This attraction comes again from that passage in Isaiah 2 that I was mentioning. It's kind of this almost supernatural magnetism. Isaiah writes, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The nations will stream up to the mountain of God, almost like this reverse stream pulled in by the presence of God on his mountain. The nations will seek him out, not out of compulsion, but in order to learn his ways and walk his paths. This is the picture of Isaiah 11.10. A new creation where everyone, with joy and on purpose, determined, come to the place where they know God can be found. They don't accidentally stumble across God. They're seeking him out. They're rallying to him. You see, this new creation actually rises above nationalism, abolishes violence through this reorienting reality of acknowledging in word and deed the true king over all, God himself. And there is where all creation finds glorious rest. The one upon whom the spirit of God rests provides rest for all who come to him in faith. Here, all who believe in him as God and submit to him as king find their true home. The true king that we read about in Isaiah 9 while lighting this first candle of Advent, the one who brought light to darkness, whose kingdom is established and upheld with justice and righteousness, this is the one that the nations are seeking. The true king that we read about in Isaiah 11, who wears righteousness as a belt and faithfulness as a sash, this is the one that the nations are rallying to. The true king is the hope of Christmas, 
a righteous hope, a kingdom hope, and yes, praise God, a worldwide hope. Because on that first Christmas, the good news was proclaimed. Hope has come. The first Sunday in Advent is this reminder that God has already begun to establish his kingdom. It happened at Christmas. The hope of Christmas is only hope if we see Jesus not just as a baby, but as the true, snake-crushing, world-remaking king who rules and reigns in righteousness and justice. And no, not all of Isaiah is fulfilled right now. As one Bible scholar puts it, justice, righteousness, and peace at all levels, from international relations all the way down to those at the bottom of the social heap in our own neighborhoods, have not yet been fully realized. To hear these passages read during Advent, which is exactly what we're doing, or in Holy Week, is not to encourage a a smug feeling that all of that has been taken care of by Christ. Rather, it is to remind us that us, as imitators of him, we are challenged to implement these same costly and tiring values in our own changed circumstances. We wait with anticipation and hope for his second coming, but we don't wait in a passive way. The hope of Christmas has to activate us to continue to live into who Jesus has called us to be as his disciples. It is this hope of Christmas that fuels us for life in his new kingdom. It is this hope of Christmas that began the first few verses of the New Testament when Matthew writes these epic opening lines. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Do you feel the buildup that's there? I'll back up. Imagine a prophecy like the prophecy of Isaiah 11, and then imagine centuries and centuries of silence from God wondering if he would ever respond, if he would ever make good on his promises, if everything that you ever believed was wrong, if the the stump was really just a stump and God's people died off in judgment and exile. Imagine if you thought there was no branch coming anymore and then these words leap off the page. This is a story of a man named Jesus, the Messiah, whose family tree is the same as that of King David. That's when a genealogy is not so boring after all, right? Because with every name, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. There's this anticipation, this wonder, this expectation that builds. Judah with Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez with Hezron, Hezron, Ram, Ram, Aminadab, Aminadab, Nashon, Nashon, Salmon, Salmon, Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed. Jesse, Jesse, the father of David. Finally, a blossom, a bud, a branch. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David has come. Hope has come. Christmas is about hope deferred becoming hope fulfilled. It's about the hope of Isaiah 11 poking out of the stump. It's about a king establishing his kingdom and his strategy is weakness. Incarnation, a cross that leads to a crown. Christmas is a hope. It's about hope that the king has come and that his kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. That the king is coming again. There's this Christmas tract called Christmas is a Promise and it, in there it says these words. It says, every Christmas is still a turning of the page until Jesus returns. Every December 25th marks another year that draws us closer and closer to the fulfillment of the ages. That draws us closer to our heavenly home. Every Christmas carol is a beautiful echo of the heavenly choir that will one day fill the universe with joy and singing. Each Christmas gift is a foreshadowing of the gifts of golden crowns to be cast at the feet of the King of Kings. Every Christmas is a reminder and a declaration that hope has come. 
a righteous hope, a kingdom hope, a worldwide hope. Is that the hope that will characterize our Christmas this year? How are we going to hold on to hope in the middle of this Advent season? Around this time, I start to get really into poetry, and I came across this poem this year that I hadn't read before that really helped me kind of hold on to hope as we anticipate Advent. It kind of filled me with the wonder of just how amazing the incarnation was, how upside down and incredible the incarnation really was. So I'm going to end with the words of this poem called Descent by Lucy Shaw, and I pray that it might fill you with the same wonder it filled me. Down he came from up, and in from out, and here from there. A long leap, an incandescent fall from magnificent to naked, frail, small, through space between stars. Into our chill night air, shrunk in infant grace, to our damp, cramped, earthy place, among all the shivering sheep. And now, after all, there he lies, fast asleep. Almighty King, this morning we are reminded and reshaped by your first coming as we anticipate your second coming. We sing of the hope that you have begun to fulfill in the coming of Christ. And we thank you for being our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. In the fullness of time, your word says that you became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Would you please open our eyes to that earth-shattering reality, to the significance of your incarnation, that you have indeed come to us in our frail human flesh in order to save us, that you have come that we might have life. We pray that that life, that light of the gospel might draw many around us in our neighborhoods and our family to saving faith this Christmas. In between these two advents, we pray that by our longing in our expectation and through our hope in Jesus, you would make us pure even as he is pure. And as Romans 15 says, may we overflow with hope this Christmas. In your son's name, amen.